Would you join me in welcoming my friend Larry Osborne? Thanks. Appreciate it. Older seasoned guys. Okay, I know what that really means. <laughs> they had a bunch of young Turks who were doing uh, great stuff for the kingdom, and they brought in a few old farts like uh, me, and uh, uh, it was just a great privilege. I, I do want to say this. Uh, it has been really fun over the last couple of years to uh, watch your ministry through the eyes of Brad and, and see as uh, God has done some really cool things, as you've multiplied your sites, as your, your church has grown rapidly, as you've figured out uh, not only the base of what you're going to do as a ministry, but as you've moved on in, into new things and just continue to grow. And, uh, you know, every now and then you hear people that they, they almost feel like this world's going to hell in a handbasket. In fact, do you ever feel that way sometimes? Help, help me out. I want to assure you it's not. There might be some tough things going on, but all you got to do is go study what Rome was really like, and then take a look at what even America is, is like today, and you'll realize, oh, we're in way, way better shape. And more importantly, Jesus made a promise that uh, the gates of hell would not prevail, right? That's what he said. And I know when I first heard that, I often thought of the gates of hell as like they were protecting us. Okay, and so I would hear that and I would hear when things kind of maybe aren't going the way we want it with our economy or our culture or different things like that as a new Christian, that, that, that the, the, the gates of hell would not prevail. And I thought that kind of meant we'd hunker down and those gates couldn't beat us up. But if you stop and think about it, what is a gate? A gate is not an offensive weapon, is it? A gate is a defensive weapon that, that city-states would build to keep out the people that were going to attack them. And it is not a statement that we will be protected as it all comes on us. It's a statement that Satan can't hold back as we move in on him. And one of the things I am so excited about in the future are people like Brad and other younger pastors throughout this country that are advancing upon the gates of hell. And those gates are shaken and fallen down in ways that sometimes as Christians we forget. And what really excites me is not just those people and the ministries that I see, such as the well and a whole lot of others, but what really excites me is Jesus Christ has a promise behind it. And that's what we take to the bank. And uh, I hope as we go through this guild and we talk about spiritual formation and what it means, I hope that underneath it, that God will be birthing in you a, an incredible optimism. Because that's what we really need to have. We saw in the little skit the thing about joy. But uh, one of the things that does sometimes break my heart is we forget the Scriptures. We forget this book, and uh, at the end, you notice we win, right? We win pretty big. And God has made those kind of promises, and yet every now and then we find ourselves, instead of optimistically charging the hill with a confidence of the Lord behind us, we wonder if we can just make it. We wonder if we can find a place to hide. And God has called all of you that are here in various areas of ministry to be on the offense. It's the gates of hell that cannot prevail. But they will stand there unbroken if all we do is hide. They will stand there unbroken if all we do is kind of pull back because we're afraid. But with the power of our Lord, the obedience to the Scriptures, and the Spirit within, they have no choice. Today we're going to talk about spirituality for the rest of us. And the, the angle that we're going to be uh, looking at is, is what does it take uh, to be a spiritual person in a way that is genuine pleasing, genuinely pleasing to God? 
And uh, I hope you have kind of a note sheet to jot down some things because I want to walk you through uh, what I see as, as kind of some problems we had in the uh, modern day church where we've reinterpreted what spirituality is. We'll take a look at what the scriptures say it is, and then we'll take a look at, at some of the areas where we've kind of substituted what God really wants with uh, what we thought he wants, and they don't necessarily match up. But as we begin, would you just join me in a word of prayer as we go before the Lord? Father, I ask you to take this time and help us to grow as men and women who are, who are serving you in various capacities, that we might personally grow to be more than men and women you've called us to be. But Father, just as important that we might understand what it is you want to produce in the lives of those we have impact with. Be they young children, be they uh, college students or young adults, be they senior citizens, the people that you've called us to touch, help us to know how we're to touch them and what that goal you want to produce is. In the name of Jesus, I pray and ask it. Amen. So what is genuine spirituality and how in the world can we help people get there? One of the problems we've had is that our definitions of what spirituality is don't always match up to the Scriptures, but they have become so common, everybody just believes this is what a person ought to do and what a person ought to look like if they're going to be uh, obedient to the Lord and become all that He wants them to be. And as I kind of think through what spirituality has been presented as, it reminds me of a marriage conference that my wife and I went to. Have any of you ever gone to a marriage conference thinking your marriage was pretty good until you got to the conference? <laughs> I still remember one in particular. There's a, a well-known organization that puts on these major marriage conferences, and somebody in our church was a, a part of the uh, recruitment for that, and they kept pushing Nancy and I to go. You got to go. You got to go. It'll, you'll just love it. You'll just love it. And they kept offering us free scholarships. Okay, we'll pay for your hotel room down there. I mean, they kept upping the ante until finally Nancy and I said, let's pray about it. Okay. And uh, decided to do it. And we went to this uh, seminar, and they began to explain what a good marriage looks like. And up to that point, Nancy and I thought on a 1 to 10 scale, we had an 11. But then as they began to describe what a good marriage looks like, we, we began to realize we're ready for divorce. We didn't know it, but at least according to their charts, we were. Because we weren't going on enough family vacations, we weren't having enough dinners together, uh, occasionally the TV was on too much, the family devotion thing wasn't working out real well, uh, uh, times of always praying every day as a couple. You know, you, you've seen the kind of list that, that is out there. We looked at that list and we said, we fail this thing miserably. We looked in the mirror and we said, what a great marriage we have. Now, where is the disconnect there? The disconnect is simply this. They took a bunch of tools that could help your marriage be better, and they turned them into rules that you had to follow if you wanted a good marriage. They took a bunch of tools that could help you grow closer together as a couple, and they became measurements by which they decided whether or not you had a good marriage. You with me on that? What I'm going to lay before you today is a challenge that if we're not careful, we can do the exact same thing in our own life when it comes to figuring out what does it mean to follow Christ the way He wants us to follow Him, and what are we calling people to do and to be when it comes to following Him. Now, basically, here, here's the problem. Uh, three things. We, we have tended to measure the wrong things. That's problem number one. When it comes to trying to figure out how somebody is doing, we've tended to measure the wrong things. 
As you'll see in a little bit, we've also tended to forget how people actually grow. We measure the wrong things. We forget how people actually grow. And third, we forget what God says He wants. We forget what God says He wants. Um, I have long wondered, when, when I talk about the inner life, do you know what I mean? Help me out for just a second. Does that bring a word picture uh, to your mind when I, when I talk about kind of the inner life spiritually or spiritual formation and, and, and the journey? Here, here's what I have often wondered. I wonder how many of you have wondered this. Why are all the books on spirituality and the inner life written by introverts? Have you noticed that? They, I, I read these books and they talk about going away in solitude with God. Uh, you know, some of the, the pastors that write these things talk about getting away for three or four days with God. Some of them love to go to a, mo a monastery or whatever. And just, they just are soaking in that silence and just reconnecting with God. And I read that stuff and I go, dude, you are an introvert with a capital I. Because any of you who are extroverts, you know what that's like. About day one and a half, you're talking to trees. Right? Hi, how you doing? Oh, good to see you. I mean, you're going nuts. But those of you that are introverts, you know in the hustle and bustle of life, sometimes you just completely lose yourself. And you need that big time out to figure out who am I and where am I and what's God calling me to be. And the problem is not that introverts write about spirit, the spiritual life. The problem is they write almost every book on the spiritual life. Another question I've got is, how did reading become the quintessential tool for spiritual growth? Now, we're, I, we're all on the same page that to uh, be spiritually mature, you have to live a biblical life and have a biblical worldview. Would we agree with that? But what is interesting to me is somehow over time, the skill of being a good reader has become absolutely essential to be spiritual. And we've got a core problem when we are presenting a spirituality to people and a path to spiritual maturity that only some people can take. I was telling uh, Brad and, and, the, and the leadership team uh, 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 yesterday, we were talking about some things. Did you know that studies show that only 55% of men will read another book after they graduate from high school? I'm serious. It was uh, uh, some research that was done by publishing companies who were not real happy about that. <laughs> but 55% of men will never read another book cover to cover after they graduate from high school. And yet if we presented a spirituality that depends not on you getting the Scriptures into your heart some way anyway, but on reading, guess what we have done to over half of the men in our country? We've basically said there's no spiritual path for you. And we have done that in all kinds of ways. Here's one. I, I am big on studying the Scriptures and reading the Scripture. We, uh, it, it, that's a big deal at, at our church. Uh, you guys are using your, your, your life journals, a great tool to get people into the Scriptures. It's, it's, it's not a rule, but it's an incredible, incredible tool. But here's a question. Was there spirituality before the Gutenberg Press? Think about it for a minute. How many of you think people could have a mature walk with God before the Gutenberg Press? Help me out. Okay. Guess what that means no one had? Daily devotions. Because before the Gutenberg Press, you couldn't have a Bible. Right? It wasn't there. A church might have one. 
a, a town might have a couple. This is not to say, don't read your Bible. We live in a day and age where they're plentiful, and thank the Lord for that. We live in a day and age where most people are literate. Thank the Lord for that. But what we must always remember is the goal is not to read. The goal is not to know. The goal is to become like Jesus Christ. And all of these things are paths to get people there. And so I want to talk to you as, as leaders of various ministries of small, large, and different things. I want, I want to talk to you about learning to look at people and asking this question, where are they now? Where do they need to be? And what path will work best for them? Where are they now? Where do they need to be? And what path will work best for them? And if we would learn to break out of our one-size-fits-all spirituality in terms of the paths, we would be able to bring many more people to maturity than we've been able to do. And there's a variety of problems that, that cause that. Uh, one of them is a thing called gift projection. If I say the word gift projection, how many of you that brings a picture to in your mind? Okay, just for you. Let me explain what it means then. Gift projection is when I take my gifts and my calling and I project them on everybody else. Have you noticed the natural tendency we all have to kind of assume that when people grow up, they'll be just like us? Right? Uh, in fact, uh, if you want to jot this down, this is just a little insight into human nature. You see it all the time in parents and in marriages and whatever. Uh, we have, uh, in our sinful state, our natural tendency is to think, well, everybody's like me, or they will be when they grow up, and, and therefore, if they only knew what I knew, or experienced what I've experienced, they'd be just like me. Because after all, they're a blank slate. So if I can get you to know the facts I know, you'll go, oh, I'll vote that way. If I can get you to experience what I've experienced, the thing you say, oh, I don't want to do it, you'll go, oh, I love it too. So what happens? With our children, with our co-workers, uh, in our, our marriages, and in our, our, our spiritual teaching to people. We try, them to get, we try to get them to know everything we know, and to do everything we did, and we're sure they're going to see the world just like us. I mean, w w what happens in a marriage when uh, two people see things differently? We throw facts at each other, right? Okay, honey, I understand you don't see it my way, but it's obvious why. You don't understand. And then here's my list of 20 things. And then at the end, Nancy looks at me and goes, no, Larry, you're wrong. I go, okay, Nancy. I will say those 20 things slowly. <laughs> right? We sometimes call that nagging. And the idea is if I could just get this information into you, you'd go, oh, I get it. But if we stop and think about it, the way life really works is sometimes two people can know exactly the same thing and end up with different conclusions. And if that doesn't work, we tell people, well, to experience it. So let's say in, uh, uh, in, in uh, our marriage, Nancy grew up camping. And I can't stand to camp. If it's a Hilton, that's camping, okay? <laughs> so what she keeps saying is, well, let's just try it. You'll love it. So I try it, and I hate it. Well, let's try it at this place, and you'll love it. 
Now, is that not really, think about your marriages, your friendships, uh, those of you that are parents, your kids. Is that not how we do most of our training? It's about information. Ta-da! It's about experience. Oh, I'm wrong. And it's all in the assumption, if you know what I know and do what I do, you'll become like me. That's what gift projection does. It, even though the scriptures say that we are the body of Christ and all have great differences, that there's an eye that's supposed to see and it doesn't matter if it can't hear diddly, that there's an ear that's supposed to hear, it doesn't matter, it can't walk, that we see ourselves and we think, well, everybody ought to be like me. And, and what ends up happening is when you do that in your spiritual leadership, you end up with a whole bunch of people who feel guilty and a small group of people just like you go, preach it, preach it, preach it. I remember the first time I experienced it. Uh, I, I grew up in a little Baptist church that was kind of uh, legalistic to say the least. And, and we would have these people come in, and the ones that were the most amazing were the guys that were evangelists. And these evangelists would come in, and they would pump us up to talk to anything that breathed about Jesus. And they would have all of these amazing stories of people they led to the Lord. You, you've heard those kind of stories, right? I mean, the guy would be, he, he'd be there, and he'd tell about on the way to the uh, meetings as he was in the plane, he led the guy that sat next to him to the Lord. He led the person on the other side to the Lord, and, and two stewards came to the Lord, uh, and, and, and the pilot, by the end of the flight, was, you know, going through the four spiritual laws. I, you know, I'm just like, whoa, what's happening here? And, and in my life, I'm thinking, you lead every waiter and waitress, you run across to Jesus, I can't even get a second cup of coffee. And I would just feel really guilty. But here's what was interesting, that evangelist who was leading everybody to the Lord and saying, you've got to do that, projecting it, never hung around to train anybody up to maturity. And those of us that were hanging around to bring up people to maturity, we felt guilty we couldn't evangelize. And then he, when you'd say, well, where are all these people you led to the Lord? And when you're doing with them, he'd feel guilty because he wasn't doing his part. And, and, and then we'd have a work day and all the people with gifts of helps and mercy, they'd show up for the work day and they would get all upset at all the people who weren't there. Of course, you've never had a work day like that, have you? Uh, and then all the people who go to the prayer for the persecuted meeting, they're, they're all upset at the workday people who don't come out for prayer. And what you've got is you've got this whole tendency just to project ourselves on one another. And because of that, the body of Christ is not encouraged to be the body of Christ. And the different pathways and expressions of genuine obedience to our Lord are not allowed to flourish. And we end up with churches where people come to Jesus and primarily they try to be like the people on the stage because the people on the stage have the platform. And whether it's be very evangelistic, very missional, very Bible-oriented, whatever it is, we just think, well, that must be the only thing Christianity is. And as you work with people, what I want to encourage you to do is to understand this one thing. Spirituality is measured by obedience. If we had to boil it all down, being right with God, getting to the place we need to be, is measured by obedience. Uh, excuse me, by obedience. I want to give you one other thought and then we'll move into some examples of this. I call it the cobbler in Corinth. And I don't mean pie, I mean the guy who made shoes. And it was an aha insight for me uh, after I'd been actually a pastor for uh, a number of years because I, like everybody else, tended to think that when people would grow up, they'd see the world just like me. 
And I'm a leader, and I'm a, a Bible teacher, so I'm real hungry for the Word. I study it a lot. I, I love to teach it. That's how, how I find myself becoming more like Christ, is finding out what He says in His book and, and doing it and all that. And then one day I was reading through the, the New Testament, uh, kind of more of a rapid read to get the big picture of stuff, and something dawned on me. The Apostle Paul went around doing all of his ministries, and along the way he picked up people like a guy named Timothy, like a guy named Silas, like a guy named Titus, and, and these were leaders that he poured his life into and he took to a next level. And I realized as I was reading through the book of Acts and then the New Testament letters that my assumption was that every good Christian becomes a Timothy, a Silas, a, 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 a Titus, a, a Paul, a Barnabas, that well, we all become that. And then as I was reading these letters, it dawned on me that, huh, that's not really what it was like. That, for instance, in the town of Corinth, when the Apostle Paul went there, that he led a, a large group of people to the Lord who led other people to the Lord, and then this church formed, but very few of them actually became leaders. Most of them just stayed behind, and that's when I got this concept of, I wonder what it was like for the cobbler in Corinth. And I realized, here's what happened to the cobbler of Corinth, in, in Corinth. Uh, according to the Scriptures, and if he was listening to all the things the Lord was uh, saying through the Apostle Paul, uh, number one, he quit visiting the uh, temple prostitutes. Uh, because back then you would uh, visit the temple prostitutes as part of fertility rites so that your crops would go well or your business would go well. And the Apostle Paul says, man, your body belongs to the Holy Spirit. You cannot do that anymore. So this guy would kind of take the, the social and business risk of saying, okay, I won't do that anymore. He would then become uh, uh, completely honest in his business dealings, unlike other people. He would no longer say, well, what are all the co other cobblers doing on, on this deal? My yes is yes, and my no is no, and I'm going to live that, whether it brings in more money or less money. Then he would start treating his wife with a respect that we would know today in our culture, but was unknown in that culture, and his children as well. And he would die loving Jesus, never having gone on a mission trip, probably never having read through all the epistles because he was illiterate. But he would die loving Jesus, and that was a win. You with me on that concept? And when I began to understand that, I began to realize that our goal is to help people obey the Scriptures. Our goal is not to get them to know everything. Our goal is not to get them to be a type A personality that you know, jumps through every hoop that's put out in front of people. It's simply to help people obey the light they already have, and God will give them more light. And as he does that, we continue down the path. And the process of following Jesus isn't from non-Christian to super saint on fire. The process of following uh, Jesus for most people is from non-Christian to baby Christian to the back of the line to tapping someone on the shoulder, can I pass you here? And it's just a slow move up to become the person he wants to be. And understanding that, frankly, has revolutionized North Coast Church. Because we have become a place I've been there now 28 years, but I've been doing this kind of thing for about 25 of them. But we finally became a place where two people could thrive, leaders could thrive, and regular people could thrive. And that's the passion. That's why my book is called Spirituality for the Rest of Us. It's not down on leadership. It's not down on high discipline. It's simply trying to figure out where people are, where they need to go, and what is the best pathway 
for their particular mix of gifts and their particular situation. So let's flesh that out just a, a little bit more. That's that cobbler in, in Corinth idea. What is spirituality? Let me give you three phrases, uh, terms for it. Spirituality, first of all, at its core, as I've already said, is obeying the light we have, trusting God enough to do what He says. Trusting God enough to do what He says. In fact, I'm going to switch gears on this. Instead of give you those things, I'll just leave that as a core one. I'm going to switch gears to... Let's talk about where we've gone astray. Because that's the main thing. Obeying the light we have, we get more. We've gone astray in two areas. We've substituted religion for relationship. And I wanted to find those two things for you. You kind of use them, look in the mirror, and ask yourself some questions. Hmm, where did I find myself falling into that? Because I sure find myself slipping into that. Here's what religion is. Religion is a set of rules and regulations that manipulate God. Religion is a set of rules and regulations that manipulate God. And it's kind of a one-size-fits-all. Because you've got a God out there who gets manipulated by what you do. Now, you can see it in the pagan religions of the world where you make this sacrifice, do this, whatever it would be, and God has to answer. But it creeps into Christianity as well. That if I uh, jump through certain hoops, then God has to answer. Uh, I can, as long as in, in, in some of our faith traditions, as long as I'm baptized, I can live like hell, but it's okay, God's got to let me in. Uh, as long as, you can fill in the blank. They're just a bunch of rules, and we tell people, do this stuff, and then God will be pleased, and God has to take care of you. That's what religion does. And it tends to be one size fits all. It's rules and regulations that when followed, God has to bless. And we forget that God doesn't always bless the best of the best. You ever read about Job? What precedes the story of Job? Somehow, I, I want to ask someday, how did this happen? But Satan and God are talking. And basically, God says, have you seen my main man, Job? He's the best of the best. And so what is Job's reward? All hell breaks loose. It's enough to make you want to be spiritual, isn't it? Like, what is this about? But religion forgets that kind of the outcomes of our life are up to God. That we're just called to obedience, and, and it has that manipulating side. Well, here's what relationship is. When it comes to relationships, unlike religion with one size fits all, rules and regulations manipulate God, relationship recognizes this. No two are exactly alike. No two relationships are ever exactly alike. And we are always telling people that we don't have a religion, we have a relationship, right? That's one of our cliches. So let's think for a little bit what a relationship is like. I love to use my brother and I as an illustration of this. And in this, in this story, my dad is the father of the two of us, but let's let him also be the heavenly father. Here's how it worked in the Osborne house. My brother and I had a great dad with very reasonable house rules, and both of us were under those house rules. We could not mess with them. Let's call those the biblicals, black and whites, the rules of Scripture. But when it came to who we are, we couldn't be more different. In fact, when we were teenagers, my brother and I used to have to pull out our driver's licenses to convince people we were brothers. I'm not kidding you. 
Uh, I uh, played some basketball, but as soon as the season was out, my hair would grow long. It grew quickly. Thank you, Jesus. And I had my little ponytail and kind of little hippie look that, uh, you know, we thought was all cool. And my brother, you know, I got to remember the time frame. My brother wanted to be a cop. Now, firemen and cops are cool professions nowadays. In the 70s, they were called pigs by people that were young. And here I come home, and my brother, who is a freshman in high school, is on the bed reading, no lie, how to set up police roadblocks. I got my tie-dyed shirt and things, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, you know, and I'm just so worried he will never have a friend in his life. Of course, he's worried I'll never get out of jail, but those were two different things that were going on. But we, we could, and then he was like a, a junior cop, whatever they thing, you know, and so he had, in a day and age where everybody had long hair, he had his little, we called them white walls, you know, around the, this, and I'm just like, oh, Bob, oh, Bob. Bob today is a commander in the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. I think it's the second largest police department in, in, in the world, and he's like number 14 on the food chain. He, he, he knew what he was doing. He knew what his, where he's heading, and he's done incredibly well with it. I am so proud of him and what he's done. He's walking with God as well, which makes it all the better. I've gone on into ministry and uh, you know, the things that I have done, and yet if you were to get the two of us today, you would still look at us and say, these two people cannot be brothers. Now, did dad love one of us better than the other? Talk to me. Not at all. Now, how stupid would it have been for me to go to my brother and say this? Bob, you know, dad really loves me. I, me and dad, we're tight. So I'm going to give you a few hot tips. Grow your hair a little bit longer. Not as long as mine. Dad doesn't like that, but a little longer. Can the little police roadblock books Take up sports so you can talk sports with dad. He really likes it. He loves to go to the games. He likes to talk about him afterward. We were living in L.A., so start following USC football so you can have some fun conversations of years ago when he was involved and why your players today are better than his players back then. It's just, it's, Bob, that's how you connect. And also, sit down and have lengthy conversations with him about the world and politics. I mean, look at dad and I, how tight we are, and, and that's what I do to connect with him. My brother's over there who has music gifts, which I was left out of. And Bob says, Larry, you don't understand. Dad loves me. We're tight. The way to get tight with Dad is share the sense of travel and how fun it is and remembering all the details of a trip and, and music. Understand music and get into it and learn to really like music because that's how you really connect with dad. Dad loves it when we, we kind of do some old songs together and, and, and new stuff and we talk about it and, and he, he loves to, to dream of the next vacation. And Larry, every time we go on a vacation, you're in the back reading a stupid book. You don't even see where we are. You got it all wrong. You need to. Now, now outside hearing this story, don't you look at it and go, well, how stupid that would be? Because as long as we kept the house rules, dad loved us both. The path was not unique. There were a million paths of communication as long as they were under the house rules. I share that story with you as a picture of what we tend to do. 
we tend to find what works for us and put that on everybody else. We never give space on the house rules, the commands of Scripture. But on the things that connect us, we have to learn to help people be a better them than a poor us. And when we do that, people begin to flourish in their spiritual life. Uh, I want to show you a passage that speaks to that. Uh, If you've got a Bible, I think a a few of you do, but find Luke chapter 7. I realize this is, you know, the the, the Guild is not a a Bible study, so uh, only a few of you probably have one, but kind of glance along and and find Luke chapter 7. Verse 31, I love this story. Now, let's set it up with this. We've got John the Baptist. Talk talk to the boy, help the boy. Is John the Baptist kind of a spiritual icon? We're we're on that page. Okay, there's this guy named Jesus. Is he kind of a spiritual icon? Okay. Would you say both were pleasing the Lord? Help me out. Okay, catch this. Verse 31. Jesus is kind of whining and complaining to the uh, uh, religious leaders of the day like he was uh, prone to do. And he says, you know, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like a bunch of children sitting in the marketplace who call out to each other. We played the flute for you and you wouldn't dance and we sang a dirge for you and you wouldn't cry. Basically saying, you know what? You're never happy whatever happens because the flute was the instrument of the party. So he says, we come along and we play the flute and, you know, the party's rolling and all you guys do is sit there. And he says, okay, so we will sing a funeral dirge for you. And you won't even cry for that. It's like, what do you want? You're never happy, is what he's saying. And then he gives his key point to what we're talking about today. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. He was an ascetic. Remember, he lived out in the wilderness. He wore weird clothes and he ate weirder stuff. Uh, and, and, and so what did they say of him? He has a what? He's got a demon. So then the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. You know, Jesus the party animal shows up. And what do they say about Jesus? Oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So what Jesus is pointing out here, he's saying, guys, I don't get this. The party flute, the funeral dirge, you're not happy with anything. On one extreme, we've got John the Baptist Mr. Joe ascetic, just kind of, you know, me and God out in the wilderness. Had to be an introvert. There he is, just kind of hanging around. And then you got Jesus out there at the parties, and when they run out of stuff, he says, let me make some more good stuff, which is why they kept inviting him. (laughs) And then here's Jesus' statement. Jesus says that wisdom is proved right by all of her children. In other words, the rightness of John the Baptist is proved not by the path he took. Remember, it's all under the house rules. Don't forget that. I keep coming back to that. There's no messing with the house rules. But the ascetic kind of pull away from the world path of John was proved right by the spiritual fruit and the spiritual children. And the path of Jesus Christ was proved right 
by the spiritual fruit and the spiritual children. But what do we do in human nature? We pick one or the other, and we think that's what everybody should take. So much so, did you know the, uh, the, the followers of John the Baptist came to Jesus at one point, and they said, are you the Messiah? We don't quite get it, because you're, you're not doing it like John did it. And Jesus said, well, go tell them about the miracles. Go tell them about all the things you're seeing. Go tell them about the fruit, and, uh, and he will get it. So that was that first thing. We substituted religion for relationship. And in John the Baptist and Jesus, you couldn't have more different ways, more diametrically opposite ways of relating to Jesus. And both were quite exciting to the Father. And second thing we've done is we've confused leadership with spirituality. We've confused leadership with spirituality. And I've touched base on this already. Our goal is not to make everybody a leader. Our goal is to make everybody obedient. And those are two different things. Are we near a break right now? Okay, so let's, let's take our break right now. When we come back, I want to talk about how we actually grow. And then I want to, we're going to jump into some passages where it's, it's going to be a little fun because you'll go, huh, boy, I never saw that one before. And see what the Bible actually says about our need for more faith, our zeal, and a, and a whole bunch of other areas. So we'll come back then.